welcome to GP Works, the podcast about and for general practice from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Tony Cox and in this podcast I'm talking to a group of people who took part in the plenary session here at the winter meeting, the ICGB winter meeting in Athlone. The session was titled The Benzodiazepines, Do I Really Need to Take That Tablet, Doctor? And uh, it was chaired by Edith Delargy. Ida is the Director of the Addiction Management Programme in ICGP. Also on the panel was myself as Medical Director of the ICGP, Adele McGinnity as a GP working in a deep end practice in Dublin, Professor Tom O'Dowd, who's a GP in Talla and was formerly Primary Care Professor in TCD, Professor Colin Bradley, who's Professor of General Practice in UCC, and uh, Des Crowley, who's an Assistant Director in the Addiction Management Programme in the ICGP. Also in the group and uh, who did comment at the end of the meeting was Katie Mulroy, who has joined us here as well. Katie is a solicitor with the Medical Council. So, Ida, I suppose like the session was really <coughs> an excellent session, and I suppose we just wanted to share some of that with our general membership. Uh, what was the thinking about organising this session? And you know, the, if there was an edict from the Medical Council or a director from the Medical Council, what did you, when you put this session together, what were you hoping to achieve, and what did we achieve for our membership? Okay, thanks, Tony. Well, the, what prompted the session really was the recent statement from the, the Medical Council uh, around the prescribing of benzodiazepines, Z drugs, and pregabalin. And I suppose what I was hoping to gain from it is uh, to inform GPs about what resources are there currently, what learning materials are there, and also to share experiences of all of us who are working in general practice that uh, we share common uh, challenges around managing these type of patients or managing this issue in our own practice. I think that was achieved well during the, the session. There were a lot of opinions aired and there were a lot of very practical suggestions coming from those of you on the panel and also some from, from the floor as well. So I do feel it was a successful uh, session mm. in that regard. I think that was the feeling from the room. Uh, it might be just helpful for uh, everybody if we just introduce what, what our own unique perspective was. I spoke as just a GP who's working in a rural town in the Midwest, and I spoke about the challenge that is there for GPs uh, addressing this issue with their patients. Uh, after the Medical Council uh, press statement the following week, I did decide to tackle the problem, and I had six patients that morning that I found I was emotionally drained at the end of the morning, uh, trying to help those patients, trying to identify the problems that they had, and, and trying to work out a plan to work with them. I only had one success out of all of that, and that's a nearly that's an early success, and we'll see how that goes. But it was emotionally draining, and it was a challenging thing to do. And I also raised the topic as well about um, some patients who have uh, been assigned to my practice from a previous practice uh, who have come with difficult prescriptions and difficult prescribing uh, patterns that I will have to try to modify and then change because some of it I just don't feel that I can support and that I can continue and, and I think it's going to be a, a difficult road and it already has been a difficult road so I spoke to that about that in the meeting. Edel, you spoke as a, a deep end doctor working here in Dublin in the Mount Hubbard so but yeah so I, I have a big GMS practice in one of the uh, deprived parts of Dublin where there are huge issues around addiction and chaos and psychiatric problems which these these uh, illnesses are much more common in these areas and and there are, there is not much support for uh, all the psychological and family problems that people meet 
Uh, I've been a long time in the practice and I can't actually remember how it came about that we decided we would not routinely prescribe benzodiazepines and we set that up as a practice policy. Um, always, of course, it brings a lot of challenges and we have a subset of addiction patients who are on methadone and I think that there are different approaches sometimes needed for them. We have about 40 of those. But within our general population, we have very few people on regular benzo scripts. And uh, we've just managed to, to learn that um, the best way to do that is to say that it's practice policy. So if we have somebody who comes to the practice on a benzo script, we will inform them that within six months we would hope to work with them to reduce and stop that. Um, and there are lots of strategies that we have to use to, to try and cope with the horrendous levels of anxiety that prevail in society at the moment. Um, mostly the, I come up against it where people have been given a tablet by a friend or they've been given a couple of Xanax for panic attacks um, and they want more of them and you may be trying to get them on an SSRI and they don't want to take the SSRI, they'd much rather have more of those tablets, thanks very much. So I think a lot of it is about education and providing them with alternate strategies. I use quite a lot of online stuff, um, meditations for people who are feeling distressed or websites that show you how to deal with anxiety. But mainly it's about being with the patient, getting them established on medications that really will help their anxiety um, and just reiterating that the, these tablets are harmful and that um, they're not good for them and that you know, it would be much easier for me to prescribe them than to sit here having this long conversation about why I'm not prescribing them. But actually, I care about their health and their well-being, and that's why I don't want to prescribe them. And I will always say it's first of all, I said it was practice policy. And then more laterally, as the new guidelines came in from the HSE, I would say that this is a HSE issue. And, you know, I can now also say that this is medical counsel. This, these are not good medications and I want to do what's best for you. You came across as being a very caring doctor, and but, but what people picked up on was, you know, that you actually have been able to implement that saying no policy in your practice, and that's what people wanted to hear a little bit more about. We might come back to you about that later on. Okay. Uh, Tom, are you? Can you tell us about your experience as a GP in Tallinn? Yes. Well, I suppose my practice is very uh, similar to Adele's, and uh, we've been concerned about uh, benzo prescribing for several years. Uh, in the area and particularly in the practice and uh, we put in an intervention uh, about seven years ago I'd say now with um, a leaflet uh, discussion with patients um, and then we audited it um, a year later and we found really that it had made very little difference and indeed when I presented this one of the local GPs said he didn't believe me and he went away and did this uh, repeated the intervention in his own practice and told me yes it didn't make any difference for him either so there's a hard core of people who are on long-term benzos I think the criteria for us was they had to be on them for two years or longer uh, who um, sadly uh, will come off them with great difficulty and uh, very few of them uh, will come off them um, and of course it's more complex now with the introduction of street benzos. Uh, they're widely available on the street. So you are prescribing, uh, or certainly I feel I'm prescribing with one hand tied behind my back. Um, if they don't get them from me, or they don't get the uh, dosages from me that they require, uh, they're able to buy them on the street. And this uh, has introduced a dynamic into the whole thing uh, particularly the younger patients who are on the street 
I think it's more difficult for older patients who are not on the street. They have, um, they're not in the street culture. They have uh, difficulty getting them. But there's a culture of uh, mankind using medication, psychoactive medication, uh, for years. And I suppose my generation of doctors has handed over this benzo mess to the incoming generation. And what we substitute now, which will be by and large other medications like pregabalin, SSRIs, lanzapine, they may well be the diary for further generations. So it's going to be, uh, I think, an eternal battle. Mm -hmm. But you're not losing heart, Tom. No, I'm still up for it, <laughs> just about. <laughs> okay. Des, can you tell us about your experience there? Uh, thanks, Tony. Well, I was on the panel to represent uh, doctors working in the addiction services. And as Adele has already said, um, the patient uh, linked with addiction and with uh, having some other substance use issues, they are kind of a unique population and probably will need to be managed in a different way. I suppose for me, though, there are some commonality that we need to kind of put out there around benzodiazepine use and uh, that is that you know there are people who just use them uh, for short periods of time and as we know the recommendations are clear that that's that's reasonable as long as it's not long above four weeks and then we have dependent patients who don't abuse it and take what's prescribed um, but clearly dependence means that they're also addicted so when they attempt to come off the medication they will actually have withdrawal symptoms and that's often what is the difficult thing to, to manage often there's a huge psychological addiction associated with being on the particular medication as well uh, and then we have a group of patients who use uh, benzodiazepines illicitly, and that's the group that I would actually have most experience with. So in terms of that particular group, um, they often, uh, in our service, they would be opioid dependent, so they would come to our service um, having a problem either with uh, over-the-counter medication or illicit heroin use. So our first job is to stabilize that particular addiction, and then we try and manage the other addictions. But um, one of the things that um, I have to assess is whether me prescribing the medication actually is of benefit to the patient uh, or is it just increasing the chaos and is there potential that it may actually end up uh, as an illicit supply on the street. So the way I manage that is that um, I uh, ask my patient to engage in um, counselling or key working sessions, uh, usually about three or four sessions, keeping a drug diary. Mm -hmm. And to me, that shows that the patient is motivated. And then once that piece of work is done, I would uh, discuss uh, benzodiazepine detox with them. Uh, the maximum dose I would prescribe would be 30 milligrams. Um, and I would be clear in terms of the time-limited uh, nature of the detox. Uh, once the patient starts, obviously, we will continue to support and encourage them to go to counselling. And um, one of the important things uh, for me is that uh, to ensure that you maximize the level of dispensing. So, so if a person is initiated, that I would normally ask them to go to, to the pharmacy every day. To me, that shows motivation and also ensures that if a patient really has a problem, that they're actually willing uh, to do that. Um, I suppose at a broader level, um, I mean, one of the big public health issues uh, in Ireland is the amount of people who die from overdose. So. We have approximately 350 people dying from uh, poisoning yes. and benzodiazepines are implicated hugely in that along with alcohol and opioids and that group tend to be different they tend to be older or middle-aged males and um, so we need to look at you know our how our prescribing patterns uh, and practices are either adding to that or maybe not helping the situation okay 
one thing that struck me uh, in the room it takes a lot of time you know everybody alluded to that didn't they? you know like these mm -hmm. uh, and there was actually a call from the floor that we should advocate for um, for this to be maybe a chronic disease management program that they that our union or whoever would advocate for this to be something that would be better resourced and resources was something that came a lot uh, as well we'll talk about the resourcing maybe later on uh, before the end uh, Colin do you want to tell us from your perspective um, you've well I suppose I have a couple of perspectives so I have the shared perspective of a GP who's uh, dealing with patients and mm. patients who are addicted to benzodiazepines and, and who have difficulty uh, dealing with as people have described but the other perspective that I tried to bring to the meeting was my perspective as someone who's acted as a, an expert witness to the medical council uh, in relation to a lot of doctors who've got into trouble with the medical council o over their benzodiazepine prescribing and uh, one of the, the first things is this is an evolving situation at one time uh, this didn't come up that much because the, the perception was that someone had to make a complaint and Typically, people who are getting their benzodiazepines, regardless of the quantity, don't tend to complain. They're happy enough, mm -hmm. or they seem to be at that time. Um, so, uh, but things have moved on now, and it's been clarified in law that the medical council can actually raise a complaint themselves as long as they get information from uh, different sources. And one of the <coughs> sources they've uh, got information from uh, in the past is from pharmacists, and they'll actually, if a doctor comes across their radar as being potentially uh, over-prescribing benzodiazepines, they can get information from uh, the uh, PCRS, but also from uh, private pharmacists. So that, again, gives them, uh, and they do go after this in, in quite some detail and try and get some very uh, specific data on, on what's been going on. What's been picked up to date, perhaps, are doctors who are uh, extreme outliers who have been prescribing benzodiazepines in, in huge quantities, uh, sometimes quite deliberately in terms of giving a private prescriptions mm -hmm. to people that already are getting them from their GMS doctor, prescribing them in, in extraordinary quantities, uh, with some uh, tacit knowledge at least that, that they're feeding into a, an illicit drug trade. Uh, that's the extreme case. There are other doctors who I think have got themselves into trouble because they've got um, uh, they've been perhaps somewhat more liberal than their colleagues, and then the, the, the population who are wanting to abuse the drugs gravitate towards them and the next thing they kind of get overwhelmed I've seen that as well so I think they're, they're, that's an extreme end of the problem and to some extent that's been tackled and there are a number of doctors who've actually been sanctioned and indeed some who've taken themselves off the register because they, they got into severe trouble but I think what we're moving on to now is, is looking at the more global problem and recognizing mm -hmm. that um, first of all I think the Medical Council statement is a recognition that these drugs are not harmless, which is a widespread perception in society, and it's a perception that has been shared perhaps by some uh, medical colleagues that these drugs are that, aren't that harmful, but there's a recognition mm -hmm. that, that they are harmful. So, as I say, we're beginning to move to a situation whereby that there may be more um, of these issues coming before the Medical Council. And my take on that, if you like, in terms of, especially as I have been providing expert witness, is maybe not to sort of look just simply at the quantity of benzodiazepines people are prescribing because there may be a whole lot of factors accounting for that including social deprivation and so on but to look at whether this is a problem they recognize as a problem mm -hmm. and whether they're trying to do something about it whether or not they're getting success is, is a variable but at least they should be trying and most particularly uh, that they're not feeding into the problem by initiating prescribing of benzodiazepines in, in patients who have a huge amount of social distress and so on but but this is not a solution and recognise that this is not a solution. Ida, I know you chaired the session inside. Could I ask you, you know, do you think that uh, GPs appreciate the Medical Council statement and what was said? And do they appreciate the reports they get from the HSE? Are they helpful? I think there's, you know, positive and negative around that, uh, Tony. Mm -hmm. I think some GPs have found it very useful to be able to say to their patient, mm -hmm. you know, that the Medical Council are now keeping a close watch on this particular issue and they've 
weaponize that for want of a better word in terms of um, encouraging their patients to mm -hmm. to reduce and I mean I think that's something that that Colin said that you know I think we all need to accept and it's it's evident that we're not going to get to zero with this I think we, most practices will have patients who remain on benzodiazepines but I think we what the message really is have you made efforts can you demonstrate that you've made efforts with your patient to maybe minimize the dose that they're taking and if they can to try and encourage them to come off uh, yeah. completely and I think that's a kind of a sensible approach to it so some doctors have found it useful and other doctors are feeling a little bit threatened and in the spotlight mm -hmm. because of the, the signaling from mm -hmm. the medical council so it is I think there's kind of two ways of looking at that yeah, certainly on my, on my Tuesday, my sad Tuesday where I had my six patients, one patient even volunteered, I know you could get into trouble, couldn't you? You could lose your license. Yeah. And I yeah. said, yeah, well, you've actually put it better than I could have put it, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so patients are aware of it, actually. They are. Uh, yeah, uh, hopefully they remain aware of it uh, because it was fresh news at that stage. Yeah. 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 We, we probably something that we will use. I, I think part of the problem, though, is that they may be aware if there's a problem with benzodiazepine addiction mm. and long-term use, but they still see the odd one as being no harm. Mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of situations uh, where people are coming with sort of, uh, I mean, the, the, the classic one would be someone who's recently been bereaved, and there's almost an expectation that that should get a sedative mm -hmm. from the doctor. Not rec and the doctor sometimes don't recognize how that's not the way to deal with that because A, it doesn't help that situation, yeah. you have to get through the grief, but B, it, it also again gives them a, a sort of a wrong message that these are uh, situations of, of um, like life stress or life distress that uh, for which there is no medication and so one of the things I say to my patients is that there are some instances where it can't be cured and it may just have to be endured. Yeah, yeah that was that was that lovely phrase and I think everybody <laughs> picked up on that. Um, Adele, um, everybody was interested to hear about, you know, as I say, you've come across a very caring doctor but you have a policy or try to have a policy in your practice of no uh, benzos. How successful has that been and how challenging has that been for you to actually adhere to? Um, well, I think as Des alluded to earlier, the addiction population is very different and I was struck by some of the reactions in the room about you know people being very demanding around and threatening around mm -hmm. Benz. I think that, that is sometimes very overt addiction uh, behaviour and, and I think a lot of GPs who don't work in addiction could use specific addiction related support for, for those kinds of patients. I think the, the other group that the Colin referred to are people who are on a long term script who don't give any trouble so to speak. and maybe trying to, to talk to them about reducing is going to be a challenge for, for a lot of us. Um, I, I suppose we have just found that we, we've had to develop because of there's a big explosion in the population in our area with a lot of problems and we've had to develop lots of strategies for helping people cope with the distress that is part of their daily lives. And so much of it, um, you know, a drug is not going to help. So I think by by just explaining to the patient that you know it's that it's not you it's not that you're an addict it's just that this drug is addictive if i took it i would get addictive i'm spending this time with you so that we can come up with some other solution for your distress rather than taking these drugs um and it, it i suppose it has become known in the area that we don't routinely prescribe them mm -hmm. at all and we don't get much people asking for them the biggest problem is something like a bereavement or um, somebody comes in and says, my friend gave me a couple of Valium and they're absolutely brilliant. I just want a couple of them. Um, and we've just learned to say they're not going to help. They will help in the short term, mm -hmm. but they are really 
they're very bad for you they are addictive these are the and i think people can get very upset when you mention addiction i'm not a drug addict doctor yes, yeah. you know how could you say that and so then i i diffuse that by saying it's not you that's the problem it's these drugs if i took them i'd be addicted in four weeks it's the drug that's the problem it's not you mm-hmm. um and you know maybe get them on ssris and, and and work with them to do that sometimes mm-hmm. use a little bit of ketiapine or something like that f- which doesn't work as well of course as a benzo so they're not likely to come back and say i want more ketiapine you no, know no. just for a week or two until you get them stabilized on mm-hmm. something like an ssri or venifaxine Speaking to Dr. Rita Doyle, who is the president of the council and our GP college and a, and a former president of the college, um, she was saying part of the initiative is really to help doctors to say no, you know, so um, and empowering doctors to say no. So like saying no is important. I'm a GP trainer and, I, and I've been trying to empower my trainee to say no. And, and Tom, it was interesting for you saying, you know, this legacy, we don't want to pass this on or carry it on. And, and that's part of my fear as a trainer that I don't want to be handing this over to my trainee or my son or other people who would follow in my footsteps. How, you know, what can we do to try to make that happen? Or is, it, is it likely to be successful? I, I was struck by the contributions from two young general practitioners in the audience. Uh, one of whom was trying to struggle with a list where there were a high level of uh, benzo prescribing and the other was another young colleague who had a complaint against her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think uh, the mess, the benzo mess, uh, is certainly a factor in influencing doctors, young doctors, as to whether they take on a practice or not. And I think with now the threat of perhaps to their licence, uh, the amount of work, it undoubtedly takes a huge amount of work because we've taken on a list from a, a doctor who is a very high prescriber. Um, it is requires a lot of energy uh, and it requires the ability to be just good enough. Uh, you won't get perfection. You won't get uh, people down to two milligrams a day or whatever it is, but you may have to uh, arrive at an uneasy truce uh, with patients. And younger doctors sometimes find an uneasy truce unacceptable but it's mm. part of the you know the, the the motto for this year's meeting is the art of general practice the art of generalism and the art of generalism really is uh, reaching an uneasy truce with patients because if we're not a refuge uh, for patients uh, you know where is nowadays i think as well it's very important not to underestimate the doctor as a drug in this scenario because i think that if we can tolerate i I think the capacity that we can teach our trainees to tolerate distress tolerate our own distress but to sit in a room with somebody who's lost just lost a child for example Mm -hmm. and really Mm -hmm. be with that patient and that is a very precious thing for that patient and that's what we need to learn to do and teach our 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 trainees to be able to well, you know, to show that distress is something, as Colin says, mm-hmm. that sometimes has to be endured. But if you can endure it with your patient, because sometimes we can't cope with a patient who comes in very overwhelmed, makes us feel overwhelmed, you have to do something. And we're trained mm-hmm. to fix it, yes. make it better. Give me the antibiotic, the blood pressure tablet. Yes. It's actually quite a culture shift for us to say, do you know what? We may not make this better. But we'll see what we can do, and we'll see you back in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. So one of the biggest resources is yourself, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Des, you want to say? Yeah, well, I think there was a lot of talk about the lack of resources, but there was some resources identified that are already in place for people that might have GPs. So 
We know that the HSE Addiction Service is that you can refer your patients into their counselling service. Uh, and also like your local NGO, your local, local drug support group uh, may help you out with a key worker or case manager and they may be able to do uh, drug diaries. So uh, the drugs.ie uh, website is very helpful to find out the, the local um, services. Also, um, I think the letter to the GP and I think one of the things that could be potentially be very effective is to highlight the uh, memory and motor deficit associated with long-term um, uh, use and also the implications for driving because they're yeah. quite significant and I think uh, that may be enough that patients who don't identify it as a problem will suddenly register, okay, this actually could be affecting me and I may need to do something about yeah. it. Another point that I make there is, as you say, a lot of people have been on these medicines for quite some time, but they may have started them in their 30s or 40s, yeah. and now they're in their 50s and 60s. And I say, well, look, they may have been okay. You may be able to handle the, this, the adverse effects of them at that age, mm -hmm. but now you're getting older. And, and many of the problems, as you say, cognitive problems mm -hmm. and motor problems and so on, are much more prevalent in the older people, things like falls and, as you say, car accidents mm -hmm. and so on. Look, this has been very helpful. Now, Katie, you were in the audience as well. Katie Mulroy, uh, a solicitor with the Medical Council, and she very kindly came, al came along and joined the session and spoke very well at the end of the meeting, and I think everybody appreciated that. Katie, what was your feedback from being at that session and from being at this podcast session here? Um, well, it was very interesting from our point of view. Obviously, the Medical Council released the statement in collaboration with a, a number of stakeholders recognising this issue. Um, on a national level. The Medical Council obviously is giving a warning that it will have to take appropriate action when, when necessary, but it also is very aware of the difficulties that doctors are facing in practice, and I think that very much came through today. Um, our aim is to protect the public, but also to support doctors in their practice. And it was very helpful to hear feedback from the floor and from the experts on the panel today to hear the practical issues that uh, practitioners are facing. The Medical Council obviously wants to assist practitioners in this area. And I think the feedback that we heard today will be very helpful to go back to our group and to our work on this. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to attend. Thank you, Katie. Okay. And Ida, do you want to finish with what supports that we will be coming? We, we have life's placemats in the pack today. We have all the leaflets that were to, to do with driving and drugs. That you, uh, what else have we got in common? Well, that th that's, I suppose, it was just to highlight the, the existing educational tools. Mm -hmm. the, the document that supports the, the summary on the um, mouse mat mm -hmm. is just the summary of the tips and tools, but it's from a very well evidence-based document put out by the medicines uh, management program but in collaboration with the ICGP and the IOP so it's a very well researched and collaborative document so that's that's available to all GPs as well and you know like if you're looking for sample documents in terms of you know the letter to the GP or a patient education leaflet that's all available okay. but in addition to that then we will have an e-learning module available come early December our plan is to have that available to all GPs uh, and they will be able to log on to that uh, okay. very soon okay well look it's time to finish up I think Aida thank you very very much for putting the session together it was really well done and I think it was very very successful so thank you Aida thank you Colin thank you Katie thank you Des Tom and Adele.
So that's it from GP Works for this episode. Thank you to you all for listening. We hope you like GP Works and do remember that there are more episodes on our SoundCloud channel and on iTunes and on Spotify. So do subscribe to the podcast and don't miss out and uh, let all your colleagues know. So thank you very, very much. Thank you.